welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. It's a simple truth. The Dobbs decision was the culmination of a 50-year project to reverse the right to have an abortion. The language used in Roe v. Wade, which defined that right as a matter of medical privacy, has remained the dominant way in which pro-choice advocates and the Democratic Party have argued in favor of its preservation. As Charlotte Shane writes in the October issue, that framework is, and always has been, deeply flawed. How easily anti-vaccine advocates have co-opted my body, my choice, is an egregious example of why. Her piece calls on those who consider themselves pro-abortion to rethink the terms they use, as well as their own beliefs about terminating pregnancies. I spoke with Shane about her straightforward yet wide-ranging argument, which, put simply, is the right to not be pregnant. I really like this piece a lot, and I wish I could be perhaps more of a devil's advocate sort of person <laughs> about this issue, but I really can't. Um, and your piece is called The Right Not to Be Pregnant, and it refutes a lot of underlying assumptions about who gets abortions and why. Could you discuss what you mean when you say the right not to be pregnant? So the the right to not be pregnant was something that <laughs> came out of me actually <laughs> during a, another podcast, during the Death Panel podcast, because I was getting incensed and I just kind of like started shouting, people have the right to not be pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and um, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was just like, that's it. That is exactly it. That's how I feel about this. And it's not... It's not, it's not even like the, the right to abortion. It's because as I go into uh, in the article, for me, it's this is also about like pregnancy prevention. Thinking of things that way helped me reconceptualize the situation so that it seemed to me I had greater insight into what was really going on when people go after abortion, when they go after access and when they go after legality. Um, and those same people are, of course, the people who also want to um, criminalize birth control, make birth control uh, impossible to obtain. Um, so thinking about that helped me understand, um, helped me better understand, I think, what was going on. At least it seemed to me, it seemed like it explained a lot of things when I started thinking this is a radical statement to say someone has the right to not be pregnant. There are a lot of people who are going to bristle at that instantly. And even if they haven't really articulated to themselves, why, what seems objectionable about that? And I think it's because it, it addresses the sense that a lot of us have, even if we're, you know, quote unquote, pro-choice, even people who've had an abortion, which is that if you're able to be pregnant, at some point you should be pregnant and you should be having children. Right. Because, you know, fundamentally with this issue, with this right, it comes down to this role of belief. And belief sort of pops up in your article in ways that perhaps people aren't familiar with. In specifically, you know, you write about midwives and folk healers who had provided abortion since the beginning of human society. These were 
mostly women, almost entirely women, who were driven out of business by the professionalization of the then all-male medical field. And looking over the past 50 years, we see how the anti-choice people, because you should never say pro, pro-life because you're, you're losing the argument by saying pro-life, you're seeding right. territory. Um, it, it, you can see how belief has sort of pushed us to the point where abortions in the case of rape and incest aren't allowed. Abortions for the life of, quote unquote, the life of the mother, which again, you shouldn't even say that because, you know, this person hasn't given birth. It's ceding territory to the anti-abortionist side again. So I was curious to sort of get a sense of when you were writing this piece, and it's not the first piece you've written in response to the, the removal of Roe v. Wade, who do you hope to reach when writing about abortion, when writing about this issue that just is so... Again, basic, but also um, supposedly nuclear. I think that my own, I'm trying to think of a better word, a less corny word than journey. <laughs> my own, okay, the development of my own thought around abortion has surprised and I guess fascinated me because from a the earliest age I can remember whenever I knew about abortion as like a, you know, fact as a phenomenon, I, I thought, okay, that, that makes sense to me. Like that should be allowed. But the evolution of my own, um, you know, thinking and attitude toward abortion, I think has been profound in spite of starting from a place where I already said, oh, it should be okay. You know, it should be permitted. Um, So I feel like I sort of clarified some of my own morals and ethics around this over, you know, like whatever the, the two decades I was, you know, I started thinking about it kind of like as an adult. And it seems to me that it, is really kind of helpful to track that thinking um, between like peers and comrades. And my general sense of things is that almost everyone could afford to be pushed left on abortion (laughs) and including people who are already kind of like, I'm on the left about abortion. I sort of feel like, you you know, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. (laughs) But um, once we really start talking about something that was useful for me was the training for the abortion fund that I volunteer with, which happened, I I don't know how long, five years ago at this point or something. Like it was definitely, it was in fact pre-pandemic, pre-Dobbs. And their training included some questions like, you know, do you do you think it's wrong for someone to have an abortion, you know, at 20 weeks or something like that? And they were they were very emphatic about like, you don't have to lie about how you feel about this. Like you're here because you want to help people get abortions and you don't need to be ashamed of answering. Honestly, we're going to try not to judge each other. And it just felt pretty eye-opening, you know, where I'm I'm thinking, like, why do I feel this way? You know, why do I feel like, oh, like a third abortion is is too many? You know, why do I feel that way? And for for me, I'm like, well, it involves unlearning these misogynist, natalist, respectability sort of politics, you know? Like, why why is someone's 
legitimacy in wanting an abortion? Why does that become diminished over time if they want more than one, if they need more than one? And so when I was thinking about this, I'm like, well, this isn't this doesn't feel rational to me. You know, this feels like instilled and emotional and not something that is actually coherent from like an intellectual place. So when I write about abortion, I think I'm 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 basically always writing for people who already think who, who are already against criminalization of abortion. So if somebody who is in favor of criminalization reads something I write and rethinks their position, starts feeling differently, that's amazing. That makes me very happy. But they are not my audience. I'm writing to people who I think can do some degree of damage by kind of bringing these, I would say, you know, like misconceptions into like a pro-abortion space. And I think that's true. What you're describing is true of a lot of issues where because so many of the terms of this argument have been defined by anti-abortionists and those little assumptions and sort of internalized by the Democratic Party, by a lot of different organizations, even in people. And we need to really challenge that. And I think in your piece, you note that activists have been stuck working in within the very limited and cautious framework of the Democratic Party, specifically this notion of the right to privacy, and also that they're they're infrequent and rare. And you know, it's not you know, it's 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 not this it's it's not what you think. But do you feel like this reflects a larger problem with the party itself, like that there is this hesitancy to really engage with the weaknesses? in the Democratic Party's platform. And again, to a certain degree, you know, your your experience with the hotline has reflected that. Yeah, I um <laughs> I don't know if I should speak freely about how I feel about Democrats, but <laughs> Well no, it's funny this is Harper's this is a safe space. We're always push we're always uh, pushing <laughs> I just I I have no respect for the Democrats. I really think they're like a center right party. Um Well, and, especially now because they completely yeah. fucked up the response. Yeah. No re- like really, because it's like it's one thing to know on some level that they don't do anything and that they're kind of center right, but then to see it happen with something so fundamental and then the response just being like, oh, yeah, we thought this was settled, but I guess it's not. Sorry. And, and <laughs> Keep voting. Well, yeah, I, I am not. I was not surprised. You know, I think anyone involved in reproductive rights, reproductive access was not surprised by the leaked draft was not surprised by the final opinion was not surprised by Democrats. Um, you know, like inaction and complicity. But one of the things that really like chilled me to the bone was to be confronted with how the extent to which they will use these life altering, sometimes life ending issues for fundraising. Yeah. And I think it was like, I don't know, 24, 48 hours after Dobbs was officially, the opinion was officially released that um, I saw some, you know, report about how much money Democrats had raised, like the Democratic Party had raised. And it just, uh, that was almost as despair inducing for me as like the actual (laughs) opinion, because I just thought it's knowing that there are so many people who feel passionately about this, 
and are willing to sacrifice, willing to contribute, and that they think that that is the place to do it. It just uh, upsets me. I don't want to be a Pollyanna about it. I feel like I always have to apologize for this sentiment. I think people are, are by and large, good. I think people are good. Mm-hmm. I think they don't want to hurt other people. Um, I think the the kind of like sadistic, you know, fascist personality type is a minority. Maybe the cowardice, you know, is a majority. But I just think people are good. So when the Democrats are kind of like, we are, we are the opposition, you know, we are what's going to help this get done. And they aren't, Mm -hmm. and they won't. Mm -hmm. But that's where people are putting their energy and attention. It's such an incredible impediment, um, you know, to, to actually achieving something. Um, and that makes me very sad. And um, I think that was very much on display <laughs> uh, in the interim too, between, you know, once the, the draft opinion was leaked, right. It was like, you could have been prepared. First of all, you should have been preparing for decades because this was very clearly the end game. Yeah. It's a 50-year project. It's inexcusable. You know, it's like, this is not just negligence. This was a choice. It was a choice to sacrifice abortion, which was already barely a right. You know, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to stutter. No, I mean, it's (laughs) because it is is crazy. It is, you know, that it was allowed to get to this point is, as you say, totally galling. And to people who were paying attention, who weren't just sort of using this issue to fundraise, you could see that in so many states, there was one clinic and that the sort of things that you had to do in order to obtain an abortion were outrageous. There were as many roadblocks as, as, as possible to legally use this right. And the I think I, I really appreciate that you go through how stupid the argument of right to privacy was, and and like it and you know it it is so easily co opted by people you know anti vax people, and and the idea that you share the statistics that nearly half the world's pregnancies are unplanned. We live in that world, right? And when yeah. your your right to not be pregnant is hanging on this idea of like this is a privacy issue it's 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 so flimsy and like it's galling and it's very clear who is being left out and who is not being protected by that choice and the in the idea that the supposed opposition party is fine with leaving those people out but pretending to represent them is is it's a tough it's a tough pill to swallow yeah, the centering of doctors in that, you know, concept, too, is mm-hmm. a, a good indication that it's a very unserious commitment to the actual right in question, which is the right to bodily autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the necessity within the legal system to use what you have, to, you know, employ whatever little tricks and loopholes, and that's fine. But it just feels like (laughs) many people were not happy with Roe, but the kind of deflation, I guess, of the energy for recognizing and explaining why it was insufficient 
it was definitely part of how we got here. So, you know, I, I would love to sort of expand on this idea that biology need not be destiny. And I'm curious about the various ways in which reproductive rights can be intersectional, not only for cisgendered women, um, as you touch on briefly in the piece. Yeah, I the transphobic legislation, you know, that's sort of snowballing right now, mm-hmm. like terrifyingly, is absolutely of a piece with this this fascist project of really hijacking other people, meaning their bodies, yes, but meaning all of them, right? The entire integrity of another person, subordinating it to the state. And the intimacy between biological essentialism and uh, natalism is, I, you know, I mean, they're they're holding hands, like they're making out. <laughs> um, <laughs> you really, you know, you need one to have the other. Um, because it is essential as part of this project of demonizing abortion and then demonizing birth control and also demonizing pregnancy outcomes more broadly, demonizing uh, a pregnant person's behavior while pregnant, you mm-hmm. know? Um, is all part of, it's fueled by the position of you basically exist, you exist to be pregnant. And if you're not doing it the right way, you're going to be punished. Um, and then also, of course, coding everyone who can be pregnant, who is pregnant as a woman is part of that project too. And a really important part. Especially, I mean, also because they always have to use the sentimental language of, you know, mothers. So they're definitely, they're, they're integral and it is entirely predictable and intelligible that these legislations are, are, you know, rising together. So what can feminists and other activists do to treat abortion in an intersectional way? As you say, this 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 wave of legislation. I don't know. Again, we come back to the issue of the Democratic Party. We don't have to tell. tell we don't have to complain about it this in, for for an entire hour or something. But it's it's hard when there doesn't seem to be any drive to to fight against this. So what what can we as individuals do to treat abortion as an intersectional issue, the intersectional issue that it is? You know, if somebody were hoping for practical guidance, the the things that make a safe, dignified abortion possible are money. And right now it takes a tremendous amount of money to get someone, say, in Texas, their abortion. Uh, if they're going to have a surgical, you know, in-clinic abortion, it takes a tremendous amount of money because you have to get them out of the state. Sometimes you have to, you know, they have to stay somewhere overnight. They have to pay for the actual abortion itself. Um, So money is one way, you know, they're always the funds, the abortion funds you can donate to. Um, National Network of Abortion Funds is kind of the place to go to find them. And they, um, 
it's changing a lot right now, kind of like who does what, but the funds all always work together. So, um, you know, you can pretty much donate to any of them or donate to the entire group and um, it will get to someone who needs it. The other issue is kind of, you know, that just access like provision of abortion, you know, like the materials needed for a medication abortion, if that's what you want to do, getting that to people or getting them to a clinic, you know, because of course not every pregnancy can be ended with medication. And then the portion that maybe feels new to some people is the criminalization. So you can't have a police department that's continually being fed, you know, troughs of cash and (laughs) while you know, pregnancy is criminalized in these various ways and help people get, you know, safe, dignified abortions. Like the, so defunding the cops is a big part of this. And I think very publicly and very doggedly, not even questioning their legit, denying their legitimacy. Um, and if you are someone wealthy and white and, you know, like, quote unquote, educated, whatever, you're in a good position to do that stuff because you're less likely to face consequences for it than someone who's more vulnerable in a more vulnerable position. So I think it helps to in conversations about abortion, too. Right. It's like we're really used to just kind of saying like, oh, well, like a, a woman, it's almost all right. It's like woman always can do whatever she wants with her body. That's the issue for me. And now I think is the time to press that out. I mean, decades ago was the time, but (laughs) here we are right now. Right. So to like, to push, to push against the walls of that and be kind of like, no, you got to talk also about like capitalism. You have to talk about carceralism. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to talk about policing because they are working together against us. And it isn't going to work to, um, you know, pay lip service to one without addressing the others. So because we're talking about how the state works in in concert with anti-abortion beliefs, can we talk about the natalist state? Because it's I think it's very easy to. Uh, slide into, and here's another loaded term, hysteria. (laughs) It's easy (laughs) to slide into horror. Uh, But the natalist state is so much more than that. So, I mean, what does that look like either right now or or soon in the, in the, in the near future? Um, Yeah. So at the risk of being repetitive, um, a lot of this was already in place pre-Dobbs, which is a system of criminalizing pregnant people's behavior while they're pregnant in ways that their behavior would not be criminalized if they weren't pregnant. And part of that has been enabled, or much of it has been enabled, by this concept of the fetus as a separate individual whose like rights can be infringed by the person who is pregnant with the fetus. Um, so the, the natalist state is 
the the government that criminalizes not only the termination of pregnancy um, and makes it inaccessible because it can be legal and nearly and nearly impossible to obtain. Um, before Dobbs, there were um, people who self-managed abortion, or there's a really famous case of a mother who helped her daughter, and they were prosecuted. So it's really narrowing the confines of what a pregnant person is allowed to do without this, you know, punishment. And even for people who are happily pregnant, willingly pregnant, want to keep their pregnancy, whatever it is. Um, I mentioned in the article, you know, this is really like, I mean, almost it's like almost inconceivably awful that a, someone shot this woman in the stomach while she was pregnant. And the pregnant woman who was shot was the one charged with, you know, reckless endangerment or whatever it is. I mean, all these um, all these laws are already were already in place, really. So it's not that I doubt we're going to see a lot of new ones that are further codifying. You know, like when, as soon as you're a pregnant person, like you are the state's property, period. Like that's it. Um, which also, of course, then if you are someone who could get pregnant, if you're someone who are who is pregnant and you are the state's property, that also means if the state doesn't like the way you're being pregnant, thinks you've been pregnant too many times, thinks you shouldn't have ever been pregnant in the first place, that they that the state has the right to sterilize you. Natalism and eugenics as well are like very braided together. Um, and maybe in some ways it makes this moment um, less scary to see it on a continuum, to kind of realize how these infrastructures were erected over decades, you know, um, I think it is useful to know some of the history. Like, I think it's useful to know that abortion wasn't criminalized in the United States, you know, forever. It or for most of human history. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. And it wasn't considered murder. It wasn't right. considered immoral. Because a lot of these things, you know, they're they're presented as if they are absolute and as if that has uh, the common knowledge, right? It's like, of course, it's common sense that abortion is part of everyone knows it. We've always known it. No. Right. <laughs> you just decided to start saying that. Like, yeah. um. In the past 50 years, almost, it seems like there was some sort of massive flux of cash and uh, <laughs> towards propaganda and sort of this church church and business maybe working together to make this happen. I don't know. I haven't been paying attention. No, I know. It's crazy to me, right? It's, 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 it's like when I was talking about belief before, like that's what I, I mean in that this is all so recent, and to act like, you know, this was done overnight is, is such a such naivety. It's not it's not paying attention. And it's also not re realizing that incrementalism actually does work. <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm no fan of incrementalism, but also it it does work. And, and but you can also turn it back. 
you can roll this back and you can be you can encourage people to look at a historical spectrum to say it was never always like this even though it feels that way it was never always like this and i appreciated that this piece resisted metaphor and instead rooted its argument in the physical because the physical is the embodied experience of people who can get pregnant and We've been talking a lot about the state, but you know, you write that the power over pregnant people's bodies was transferred from the state to the medical industry um, and, quote, referred to in the common masculine possessive. So when, when medical professionals are responsible for a person's access to abortion, what are the consequences there? So speaking of incrementalism, if you want to grant someone a right conditionally, which I would argue is like barely granting them the right at all. Um, you know, you, so you have to set up like the parameters with within which you're going to allow someone to access this right. And one of the ways to do that is to say, okay, well, you know, you can decide you want to end your pregnancy, but you have to do it in consultation with someone who's credentialed and it has to be performed in a medical setting. So then self-managed abortions, um, you know, become illegal, become criminalized. And also there is this gatekeeper and people now are paying more attention to um, situations where someone whose pregnancy is failing, going badly wrong, threatening them in a really acute, immediate way, going to hospitals and being denied care. And that's presented as like, oh, this is a consequence of Dobbs. Yeah, it is, but that was already happening. So there's this report from Columbia Law School um, issued before the leaked draft, you know, performed well before, uh, where they found that many hospitals were denying pregnant people the care they needed. And it wasn't only Catholic hospitals. It wasn't only, you know, Protestant hospitals. Um, so filtering abortion through the medical establishment is one way of preventing it from being a true right, from giving people really the right to end their pregnancies. Um, because of the cost, <laughs> Because of the access in like um like a logistical sense, right? Like, um, yeah, it's just one one way to I mean it's part it's part of the incrementalism and it's also a way to sort of say, like, well, I'm giving you this thing with these very reasonable limits. And if you can't meet those reasonable requirements, then you are there's something wrong, you know? So it's not a real right. It's like um, it's it's too conditional. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I really appreciate that you start off this piece by writing about your own abortions without sentimentality. And throughout the piece, you write of your own autonomy that the growth would be impossible without my organic matter. Yeah. And in other words, pregnancy isn't, quote, in a woman, but of a woman. So for those who haven't read the piece, could you explain that distinction? Because I think it's really crucial. Uh, yeah, so I, um, I've only 
encountered protesters at my clinic uh, for my first abortion. That was the only time I encountered um, like protesters while I was actually going, you know, for the care. And I, for, I think for many, many years, I have been so struck by the knowledge that there are people who would like for me to have died <laughs> trying yeah. to obtain an abortion, the first abortion even, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I, I dwelt on that because I was like, well, but if I died then, you know, the subsequent pregnancies wouldn't have occurred. The subsequent terminated pregnancies wouldn't have occurred. So the net result's kind of the same. So like, what are you mad about? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And <laughs> um, <laughs> that's something I thought I do think about a lot where I'm just kind of like, it's not even emotional for me really, you know, to know that. I'm just like, oh, this isn't really about what it's, what you're saying it's about, which we all know, right? But, but it's good to, I think, really have those crystallizing moments where you're like, this isn't about, protecting the life of some baby right because how does it help the baby if i die trying to get the abortion you know it's well, like because i think but i think because there is again because of like this coke funded campaign there is all this the the belief is that you know uh the right of the unborn because the unborn is this perfect soul that has not yet sinned, that has its whole life ahead of it to potentially be good or commit sin. And because I think you were right to say most people are optimists, are fundamentally good, that anti-abortionists believe that this unborn, this hypothetical person, this the unborn, could, you know, they haven't done anything wrong. Maybe they'll never do anything wrong. They could grow up to be a perfectly wonderful person and so they, they that is what is at stake but also you i don't know i don't i don't know if i agree but i don't think i agree with that you know yeah i i mean it's because it's asking a lot it's asking you're taking a lot on faith and obviously this is all about belief and, and faith <laughs> right totally and it's just it's the perfect sort of like sentimental position you know of course what about the children is always what fascists use to advance their agenda yes right? and helen lovejoy in the simpsons <laughs> right, <laughs> somebody right, right. please think of the children but it's right. real but it's also it's real yeah um and with like the most minimal amount of probing you see how it's not about children it's not about babies even if these people believe it is which i'm Oh, totally comfortable saying, you know, there are people who, especially I think, you know, the teenagers like who get whipped up. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a very emotional person still like as a teenager, you know, especially I had a lot of really strong emotions that I couldn't kind of contextualize because I hadn't been alive for that long. And I can totally see someone kind of working me into a froth about these innocent babies who, you know, aren't going to be born, they're suffering, they're, they're treated like trash, whatever, you know, things I'm being told that I'm accepting. So for me, I'm just like, 
perhaps like being too, uh, too literal minded, given that none of this is actually, even if it's deeply felt on their part, it's not sincere. Um, like in the, in the real way, you know, like there's no yeah. integrity behind this uh, sentiment, but um, that I'm just like, how, how is it going to escape my body without me? That's the thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where I'm like, how do yeah. you think, like, I know you think the fetus is like a separate entity, even before it's a fetus, you think it's a separate entity. While it's a zygote, while it's an embryo, you think it's a separate entity. Um, and I don't understand how you think that works. You know, like if I have kind of, you know, I don't know, sinned against this baby who's been trying to get out of me by not allowing it to come out of me. Um I don't, does that, so that, that soul is gone forever or does it come back? Or like, I mean, it's, none of this is important really, um, like <laughs> in an objective sense, but I was just like, when, when somebody's response to the exercising of the right to not be pregnant is that the person who was pregnant should be killed, which in the piece, you know, I mentioned this New York Times report where they found this guy who's like, oh yeah, you know, the, the penalty should be the death. It should be the death penalty. A lot of people is, believe that. Yeah. 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 It is not the, not the fringe opinion you might hope mm -mm. that clearly it's, it's not even about like the um, absolute or objective valuing of life. Right. You know, like that's kind of like the um, perpetual gotcha for anti-abortionists would be like, well, that's not very pro-life of you, you know, right. to once, it's like, no, 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 but it's it's the clarity of their desire to punish someone who stepped out of line, which is so clearly what it is, you know? Yeah. And I thought about that a lot and it helped me just kind of jump over the fence of that sentimental, you know, like it's a life, whatever, whatever, where I'm like, no, like that's not actually what you think. Like you think the the crime here was me rejecting a biological capacity that I was born with. Or the crime is that you had sex outside <laughs> of marriage. Right. Right. I mean, that another, it's like kind of the Russian doll nature of actually trying to argue with people who are anti-abortion. To me, it's just like you, you reveal there's like no bottom because their position is it always gets diverted back to like, well, the pregnant person is wrong. So, so even when you say, you know, like a very common thing, for instance, on social media is sort of like, oh, well, if you didn't want to be pregnant, you shouldn't have had sex, which is absurd for so many reasons. Right. Um, one of which is that people take uh, people behave in risky ways all the time, right? People drive drunk, people drive without buckling their kid in to the, you know, the right baby seat, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so there's, you know, just endless examples of reckless behavior people in, engage in that does not have this type of, you know, enforced consequence. Mm. But moreover, these people don't think you should be allowed to terminate a pregnancy that was the result of rape. They don't think children should be allowed to terminate their pregnancies, which are always, you know, by definition, yeah. the result of rape. So it's like they've got an answer for everything, 
because they always get to go back to like, well, it's a life. It's a life. It's a life. Why is it a life? You know, oh, people have always known, right? Throughout history, <laughs> everyone knew like the that a pregnancy is like a separate life. Of course, no, no. Like this, the these claims are tools. Like if you understand the intentionality of the concept, like these aren't spontaneously arising emotions. These are like they're they're tools. They're rhetorical tools, and they do kind of take up residence in people's mind and get their claws in pretty deep. But their purpose is to engineer subordination and control. You know, it's to, it's to, as many people have pointed out, to position pregnant people against their pregnancies. The mm-hmm. greatest threat to the pregnancy is the pregnant person. Yeah. You know, they might decide to terminate it. They might be drinking alcohol all the time. They might have HIV, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and I just felt like, I guess I kind of got free of a lot of wasted energy once I realized that. Um, and when I see people argue with anti-abortionists on their terms, right. (laughs) Um, I'm just sort of like, oh, well, you know, if it makes you feel better, that's fine. But I don't think that's gonna, (laughs) I don't think that's That's not gonna move the needle. (laughs) It's not gonna work. Yeah. But (laughs) if you feels good to you, it's fine. I also feel like that makes it particularly difficult to try to talk about abortion, not just simply because people are so willing to accept the terms of, you know, a, a, a pro-choice person willing to accept the terms of an anti-abortion position, but that there is sort of this ambient cruelty of American life that comes up in the, in the way of, you know, judging a, a pregnant person who smokes or drinks but also in the sense that the willingness to point out someone else doing something wrong and to punish them for it. And so it, it, it seems like it's very challenging to approach the subject in America because of that. I mean, again, maybe that, that puritanical desire to punish, punish the, punish the guilty because they have not, you know, behaved within the parameters of, society of yeah. of, a go- of godliness yeah i the, the people who are most vehemently committed to and pushing an anti-abortion agenda which again are the same people who are going to be against birth control and they're the same people who are going to be against gay marriage same people who are going to be against trans health care or trans existence same people who are going to be against miscegenation right if we mm-hmm. keep scratching the surface we know what's under there um they have this insatiable sadistic appetite for cruelty and punishment because it's like their sense of control is never sated, right? It's never, Mm -hmm. never, ever. That's the whole idea of like, you know, I never thought they would come for me or whatever. Like, well, they had to, you know what I mean? We got locked everyone else up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's like, I really think that like, I guess... I always worry this is like a little too abstracted or I don't know, something about it feels kind of dated, like the psychological analysis, but I'm like, it, it comes from this like 
I, in my opinion, something underlying it, maybe not the thing, but something underlying it is this like terror, this terror of the reality of, of being alive, which is that like, you're not in control and Mm -hmm. the offense of other people existing, you know, (laughs) the affront of another person existing. Um, and you're never going to harness like that terror. You're just going to keep, if you, you know, keep feeding it. What particular challenges do you face when writing about abortion? Because it seems like there, it is so evocative. There are so many facets of it. And, and, and because it is so boiled down into like this little nut of yes or no, <laughs> or, or, or stupid terms or bad terms, uh, you, know, wh- how, you know, what is the challenge of writing? Well, um, I love that question. That's a really good question. And I thought so much about this while writing the piece because I had written about abortion a little bit previously. I wrote about it uh, kind of like in, in personal writing context, you know, where I like talk a little about like what my experience is like. I wrote a piece about medication abortion. Um, I don't know, maybe like five years ago or something that was just kind of like informational. Like I talked about my abortion in it, but it was really just sort of like what's going on with like the abortion pill. Mm-hmm. And um, I really wanted after my third pregnancy, I really wanted to write a piece about herbal abortion. And um, there was an, you know, there was an editor and outlet who wanted it and she was super supportive and I just, I didn't do it. And I wanted to, though, I thought about it for a really long time. And what I was realizing, I think, was that I was like, you know what? I don't I don't want to read about abortion, honestly. Like when I see something that's about abortion, I just feel like, oh, hmm. I don't want to read it. And it's even when it was someone who I knew, I was like, like even someone I knew personally. Right. So like I know they have good ideas. I know we're on this. You know, we're like on the same page because so much of the writing about abortion, it seemed to me like, okay, well, you either get like very clinical academic kind of like rigorously stripped of emotion um, recounting of like the legal issues around abortion, right? Or like, Mm -hmm. here's the legal legacy of Roe v. Wade. Um, Or you get like a history position, which I think is super useful, you know, but the history, history of like abortion and the, in the United States, whatever. So you get kind of like the academic books. Then you get the doctors telling their patients stories. And these, like the doctors are remarkable, right? They take on an insane, if you provide an abortion, like you are taking on an incredible amount of personal risk, right? Particularly Mm -hmm. if you like live public, like you're faced out, you know, I mean, their stories are harrowing, like what they go through, the harassment their families endure, um, so I don't mean this disrespectfully to them, but the stories they choose to share are very familiar stories. You know, they're stories of the incest victim. They're stories of the domestic violence victim. Um, and to me, they felt like a continuation of this attitude that abortion needs to be directed into the medical establishment. Like that, mm-hmm. that is what filters it all. And the doctor's opinion is kind of paramount in the issue. So the other type of abortion writing that I actually feel is kind of like rarer would be the personal 
um, recitation, like storytelling around abortion. And um, I just felt like it was really hard for people to share their stories without it feeling really abject. So it just felt to me every time I came to writing about abortion, I'm like, I don't think I'm going to learn anything. Um, and I'm just going to feel shitty, you know, like I'm not going to feel energized or like empowered, a corny word. But um, the the one exception I think is, um, or not the only exception, but Jenny Brown is a good exception. Mm-hmm. Um, Jenny Brown has, I think, like incredible analysis of abortion. Uh, anti-abortion laws is like a capitalist mm-hmm. um, practice. So Jenny Brown's awesome. There's also a woman named Kristen Luker, and I am obsessed with her book, Taking Chances. She also wrote a book about abortion. It's called like Abortion and the Politics of Motherhood. Very good as well. But Taking Chances, I honestly think like changed my life. It's so good. Mm-hmm. And um, so it existed. But I just felt like, okay, I don't want people to be enervated by my writing. You know, um, I don't want to take a tone that makes it seem like I'm some kind of like abstracted, you know, I'm like writing this looking down at everyone else, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm living outside of this world. Um, I don't know if I achieved that in this piece, honestly, the right to not be pregnant, but I do think I, I, um, managed to get the, um, like the, my argument out, you know, so, which is important. And um, I think maybe for like the type of people who are going to read it, it's has the right degree of authority because it's really tricky to like write with authority and not sound like you're not to assume kind of like the institutional writing tone, you know, where you do seem like the reason I'm an authority is because I am entirely objective. Like I've (laughs) assimilated all the information and I'm coming to you with the, you know. Or conversely, I've experienced this and therefore you should only listen to people who have personally experienced this, which is, again, it's valuable. It's a very valuable perspective, but also it can be, you know, if you take it too far, it can become a problem. Yeah. But also, you know, the, the idea of the confessional is, is, I don't know. Sorry. No, continue. Well, no, (laughs) I'm just going to go on a rant about the confessional. (laughs) No, I just, I, I, um, I can't actually think of many pieces of writing about someone's abortion written by the person who had the abortion that exist as a complete piece of writing. You know, it's sometimes Mm -hmm. like, Oh, it gets mentioned in a biography. Um, I can't think of many essays that are just kind of like, this is my abortion or abortions. Um, And again, what was more common was kind of like um, people being interviewed, you know, um, by a journalist, right? Doing kind of like a Q and A sometimes Mm -hmm. maybe about their abortion or triangulating, like having this third party helping the material get out or whatever. And I think there are different, I mean, different pieces of writing exist for different reasons. And people kind of storytelling amongst themselves, like sharing their abortion stories. I understand why that's cathartic and like valuable. It just seemed like something, something was happening when writing about abortion was going out into the world at large. 
You know, I'm like, mm-hmm. what is it about this that I never want to read? Is it just because the reality is so depressing? I was like, no, I think it's because it's kind of bifurcated into, you know, like the cold and impersonal or it's the personal, but it's sort of like the removed personal because it's mm-hmm. a doctor talking about it or whatever it may be. Um, so, yeah, I think I do. I think, honestly, it's the hardest. I, I don't know if I've ever tried to write anything harder than this piece. <laughs> <laughs> no, I attempted it. I don't know if I did it, but I tried. <laughs> no, I thought, I'm, you know, I really, no, I really love this piece. And I think it's a very valuable, you know, I think it's a very valuable essay because it is challenging people to rethink these sort of supposedly, again, when Kamala Harris said, we thought this was resolved. I think this piece probes into why it was never resolved and, and to, to believe that it was resolved uh, is, is, is letting down a lot of people. Um, and this is in, in thinking about it in these terms could be a way forward uh, or it's sort of the first step in moving, you know, pushing back against this real, the natalist state. So. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's like, I don't, I want people to enjoy reading it, but I don't necessarily think this is like a pleasurable reading experience. It's more like, okay, this has a function to me. You know, like you're saying, like, I want to get people thinking about these things or thinking in this way or whatever. So if it, if it uh, does that, then good. If it's also like exciting to read, good. If it's not (laughs) so exciting to read, I do apologize, but. (laughs) Hey, sure. Don't, you know, it's fine. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's not too long. I kept it. I tried to keep it short at least. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. This is a real pleasure. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast produced by Violet Luca and Madeline Crumb with production assistance by Ian Montgani. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.